You can take your Bibles and turn along with me to the book of Nahum. One more time. We'll be wrapping up our study in the book of Nahum this morning. In the short book of Nahum, we have seen the dual realities of gospel comfort and divine judgment. The author of this short book is named Nahum, short for Nehemiah, which means comfort of Yahweh, and Nahum simply means comfort. And this little book was intended to bring comfort to the troubled people of God who were living in the land of Judah, who were being threatened constantly by the menacing power of the Assyrians, whose capital city was Nineveh. The book of Nahum is all about the comfort of God's promise to justly judge Nineveh and the Assyrians for their cruelty, violence, greed, and pride. And so the book of Nahum provides both gospel comfort and the promise of divine judgment against sin and evil. Nahum holds out gospel comfort to those who humbly seek the Lord and divine judgment to those who continue in their rebellion against God. We've seen gospel comfort in the fact that God is merciful and patient. If you look back with me at Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. He is the covenant God. He is Yahweh, and He is slow to anger. We've seen that He's also a God who is good. Good in all that He does, good in all that He is, and that He cares for and protects His people. Look at Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But we've also seen in Nahum that God is not only good and patient and merciful, but that He is also holy and righteous and just, and that His long-suffering patience has a limit. The prophet Nahum in chapter 1 and verse 3 declares that while God is slow to anger, quickly reminding us that God's patience with sin, evil, and wickedness will eventually give way to His judgment. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He is a God who is one who will bring judgment and has the power to bring that judgment. This judgment of sin and evil is necessary because of who God is. He is holy, and because He is holy, He must avenge every act of sin and evil. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Assyrians were the world's greatest superpower at this time. And they defeated every enemy they came up against. Town by town, village by village, region by region, they had attacked, laid siege to, burned, pillaged, enslaved, tortured, murdered, and mutilated their enemies without remorse or mercy. 
This Assyrian bloodthirstiness is well documented in many Assyrian works of art that are still available to be seen today in museums around the world and in documents discovered when the city of Nineveh was rediscovered and unearthed in the late 19th century. Here's one such account of an Assyrian king crowing about his cruelty and his love of violence on his enemies. He says, The nobles I flayed. He peeled their skin off and put it on the walls of the city. He says, The nobles I flayed. Three thousand captives I burned with fire. I left not one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and feet of some. I cut off the noses, ears, and fingers of others. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out. And maidens I burned as a holocaust. So what is God going to do about this? Is God just going to sit by and do nothing as Assyria trampled over and dominated nation after nation? The answer to this question comes in the form of the book of Nahum. What will God do about this? God is not just going to sit by and let Assyria do as they please forever. The day of God's mercy and long-suffering patience is coming to an end for Nineveh. And the day of God's judgment on Assyria is drawing very near. This morning we are bringing to conclusion our study of this book of Nahum. And as we do so, we are going to see God's mercy giving way to God's judgment. So look with me at Nahum chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. You follow along with me, if you would, please. Love to hear those pages turning. Thank you. Nahum 3, verse 1. The vision and oracle of Nahum. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies, they stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Noaman, which was situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Pot and Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. Yet You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. 
Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You've increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is good for our souls to be reminded of the terror of the coming judgment. The reality that you have fixed a day in which to judge the nations, to judge each and every individual. Lord, we can try to whistle past the graveyard and pretend that it's not real, that it won't happen, that somehow we'll escape it. But the truth is that everyone who is outside of Christ will face the certain judgment of God. Help us to hear that today. Give us ears to hear it hearts to receive it and the wisdom to turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are only two books in the Bible that come to an end with a question. These two books are the books of Nahum and Jonah. Now that is especially interesting given the fact that the book of Nahum is essentially the sequel to the book of Jonah. The events chronicled in the book of Jonah occur a hundred years before Nahum. Jonah was, of course, that reluctant prophet sent to Nineveh to preach repentance to the wicked and violent Assyrians. Assyrians, who are the same people group that Nahum is writing to and writing about, It's the same people group that were ravaging the countryside and that were pillaging and striking terror in the hearts of everyone. They had reigned for hundreds and hundreds of years and they had a reputation as being horribly wicked and evil. They were the sworn enemy of God's people. And God tells Jonah to go and preach the gospel to them, to go and preach repentance to them. Jonah didn't want to go. He knew that the Lord was merciful and that if he preached repentance to the Ninevites, they just might repent and believe in God and God would in turn not destroy them. So when given this order to go and preach to the Ninevites, Jonah said, I'm not going. He went in the opposite direction and got on a ship headed for Tarshish. 
But as you know the story, God caused a great storm to come up on the sea and it threatened to sink the boat. Jonah knew he was the reason for the storm and the reason they might all perish. And so Jonah told the crew to throw him overboard. And they reluctantly obliged. Jonah was immediately swallowed by a great fish as the storm subsided. A great fish sent by the Lord for this purpose. And Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, thinking about his sin and his rebellion against the Lord. And Jonah eventually repented while in the belly of that great fish, and the fish spat Jonah up on the shore. Jonah headed to Nineveh, preached repentance to them, and sure enough, the whole city repented of their sin and trusted in God. Let me just read for a little bit out of Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. That means he was pretty much in the center of the city at this point. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. God is going to judge Nineveh. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. And Jonah rejoiced to see their repentance. Is that right? That is not how the story goes. That is not how the story goes. Jonah was not happy about it. He wasn't happy about it at all. In fact, he was angry at God. Jonah chapter 4, listen to this. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this... Not what I said while I was still in my own country. See, God, I told you so. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and anyone who relents, and and a God who relents concerning calamity. Jonah doesn't like what he sees, he doesn't like what's happened, it's what he predicted would happen. And it's as though Jonah's saying, See, God, I told you so. That's just like you, God, to be gracious and merciful and compassionate to sinners. Jonah wanted judgment, but Nineveh received mercy. The book ends with God asking Jonah a question. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. God says to Jonah, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Should I not have compassion on them? Should I have not have compassion on a people 
A wicked people, yes, but a wicked people who have repented of their wickedness and who have turned and believed on me, should I not have compassion on them, Jonah? Now fast forward a hundred years. Over that time, the city of Nineveh has gone back to its old ways of sin and rebellion and violence and greed. Within just a couple generations, the Assyrians had forgotten God's mercy and of his warnings of judgment. And they're now back to their old ways. Now look with me at the very last verse of Nahum chapter 3. Just as the book of Jonah ended with a question, so the book of Nahum ends with a question. Nahum 3.19 There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? You see, the question that ended the book of Jonah was a question related to God's mercy. For it was the day of God's mercy. The question that comes at the end of the book of Nahum is a question that relates to God's judgment. For the day of God's mercy has given way now to the day of His judgment. As we close our study of this this book this morning, we're going to see three lessons we need to learn about the certainty of God's coming judgment. Three lessons we need to learn about the certainty of God's coming judgment. And we need to learn these lessons so that we're not caught flat-footed or that we're not caught off guard when the day of judgment eventually does come. But more importantly, we need to learn these lessons so that we may flee the day of God's judgment and find safety and salvation in Jesus Christ during the day of God's mercy. This is the day of God's mercy. The day of His judgment hasn't come, but rest assured... It's on its way. I told you that Nahum ends with a question. There are actually three questions that are asked in this chapter. And these questions serve as the boundary markers of the sections we're covering today, the three lessons we're learning this morning. The first lesson ends with a question in verse 7. The second lesson begins with a question in verse 8. And the third and final lesson ends with a question in verse 19. We'll walk through each of them. You'll see it. First of all, first lesson about God's judgment. God's judgment is certain to come because of our sin. God's judgment is certain to come because of our sin. The reason behind the certain and imminent judgment of Nineveh is given here in verse 1. Nahum 3.1 Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, Her prey never departs. Nineveh is described here as being a bloody city. That's not British slang. That is a description of a city with blood on its hands, blood on its walls, blood throughout its streets. A city guilty of blood, shedding blood. It's described as being full of lies and pillage. Deceit and violence are this city's stock and trade. Dishonesty and carnage are what it has become known for. Verse 1 ends by saying that her prey never departs. Picking up again on the lion metaphor that was used at the end of chapter 2. Describing 
Assyria as a pride of lions, with Nineveh being the den, back to which the lions bring their mutilated prey for all to feast on. You see, Assyria, throughout its domination through the region, had captured the wealth and treasure and people of other nations and had carried the spoils of war back to Nineveh for all to enjoy and benefit from. Nineveh was a den of greedy thieves. Well, the reasons for coming judgment are further detailed in verse 4, Nahum 3, 4. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. The city of Nineveh is referred to here as a she, as cities often are, just as ships are, and other things. They're given the female designation. But Nineveh here is not depicted as a noble and wise woman, but rather as a harlot and as a sorceress. Harlotry in many contexts of Scripture is a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness to God, spiritual adultery. And that's how it's being used here. The Assyrians had long since forgotten their former repentance and faith in Yahweh and instead had returned to their former gods and sinful practices of idolatry. They were spiritual adulterers. Nineveh is further described as a mistress of sorceries, another metaphor for wickedness. The mistress of sorcery seduces nations by her charms and casts a moral spell of violence and intimidation and subjugation over all the land. She's a harlot witch. What is the result of all this pride, violence, greed, and idolatry? Look at verse 5. Nahum 3, 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. God is against Nineveh. God is the enemy now of Nineveh. This is a restatement of the divine verdict that was first issued in chapter 2 and verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh, the divine warrior, is stating his declaration of war against Nineveh and against the Assyrians. Now, there is nothing that should strike fear and dread in our hearts more than the thought of hearing these words. I am the Lord Yahweh of hosts, and I am against you. That's a death sentence. There's no hope of going back after you hear that. The result of God's opposition to Nineveh would be total destruction. This destruction is envisioned in verses 2 to 3, similar to the way that chapter 2 went, where we saw Nahum in this vision, this oracle that he was given. He had uh, prescience. He could see the future. He could see what was going to happen. And it's as though he was stationed himself in some tower on the wall, and he could see on both sides of the wall the enemy approaching and the walls being breached and people running for their lives inside the walls. 
Same kind of things going on here. Nahum chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. You couldn't walk a few feet without having to step over or stumble upon a dead body. All of this would happen because the Lord was against Nineveh because of its great wickedness. And the downfall of Nineveh would include her humiliation and shame. She is going to be humbled. The the proud will be brought low by the Lord. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? All will see that Nineveh has been brought low by the hand of the Lord. And there will be none to grieve her. None to mourn her. Instead, people will rejoice to see her downfall. They will clap over her. God's judgment of Nineveh was certain because of the Assyrians' great sin. Now, you and I may be tempted to think this morning, well, I'm glad I'm not as bad as the Assyrians. I've never killed anyone. I've never pillaged a city. I've never carried off people into slavery. I've not been guilty of any of these things. My sins are so small, so infinitesimally small compared to the Assyrians' great sin. Surely God isn't going to judge me in the same way He judged the Assyrians for their sin. God isn't going to judge me for my little sins. I mean, God and I, we're good. We're good. He knows I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But the reality is, in the eyes of a holy God, there are no little sins. It was for only one sin that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And what was that sin? They ate fruit from the wrong tree. Now, in one sense, you back up and you go, well, what's the big deal with that? Why did God get so upset? In fact, that's a common question. Why would God damn for all eternity someone who the world would look upon and say lived a good life, only committed a few sins throughout their life? Why would God damn them to hell for all eternity? I mean, they seem like a pretty good person. The truth is, if we could go all our life and only commit one sin, one sin that seemed even ever so small and insignificant to us, that would be enough to justly send us to hell for all eternity. And if you polled most of people today, they would say, that is unjust. That is not fair. That is not right. That just shows you we don't know who God is. We don't know what His holiness demands of us. 
I was privileged to attend a conference in Orlando some years back when R.C. Sproul was still with us before he went home to heaven. And it's become kind of an infamous response. You can Google it. You'll find it. His, I'm going to quote it, but you need to see it because it's R.C. Sproul in vintage fashion. He was asked the question, Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Kind of the, the implied question behind the question is, why did God overreact? Why did he get so upset? Why were the consequences so severe and so far-reaching for such a seemingly small sin? Listen to R.C. Sproul's answer. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God? And after that, God had said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die? And instead of dying... That day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by the pure grace of God and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse came upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. We don't understand, end quote, we don't understand the holiness of God, and we don't understand the significance of our sin in light of God's holiness. You see, God's holiness demands divine justice for every act of sin and rebellion, no matter how seemingly small you think it is. It is an infinitely grievous affront to a holy God. All have sinned. All are guilty. All are deserving of God's divine judgment and his judgment is always just god's judgment is certain to come because of our sin second lesson we need to learn today god's judgment is certain to come just as it has for others verses 8 through 13 so here's another question And another lesson for us that comes in verse 8. Are you better, Assyria, than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Now, Noamon is the ancient city of Thebes. Thebes was the capital of the ancient nation of Egypt. Egypt was the ruling nation before the rise of Assyria. Egypt and Thebes, like Nineveh, was a great and glorious city. 
And just as Nineveh was situated on the Tigris River, Thebes was built on the banks of the great river Nile. Like Nineveh, Noaman had great defensive walls with the Nile River helping to provide yet another line of defense. The Egyptians also had allies in Ethiopia and Put and Lubim. And yet, despite all her defenses and allies, Thebes, or Noaman, fell to the Assyrians in 663 B.C., just 20 years or so before Nahum writes these words in verse 10. Yet she, Noaman, became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces. At the head of every street, they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You see, the fall of Thebes wasn't ancient history. And the Assyrians had a front row seat for it, for they were there. They were the ones invading Thebes. They were the ones who defeated Thebes and became the the new superpower. And as great as Noaman was, and as great as her defenses were, and as great as her allies were, she was not beyond defeat. A lesson Assyria should have learned. Just like Noaman, Nineveh would fall despite her great strength and might. Look at Nahum 3.11. You too, Assyria, you too, Nineveh, like Noaman, will become drunk. That means you're defenseless. When you're drunk, you can't defend yourself. You can't fight. You can barely stand up. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden, hiding out in fear. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. It's going to come to you. Judgment is coming to your doorstep next. Just as it came to Thebes, so it's coming to you, Nineveh. And you will not escape. Nahum goes on to describe using poetic language just how easily Nineveh will be defeated. It's going to fall like a house of cards even describing Nineveh as being overripe fruit that drops easily from the tree when shaken and falls right into the mouths of her enemies. In other words, Nineveh is going to be easy pickings. We know what happened. God caused the water of the Tigris to be diverted straight into the walls of Nineveh, those great 100-foot, 30-foot wide, 100-foot tall walls And the walls were breached. And the enemy entered. And indeed, it fell like a house of cards. It's easy for us to think, like the Assyrians, that our situation will be different. That our walls will hold. That our defenses will be enough against the day of God's judgment. It's easy to think that we're a special case. We're different. That God's judgment could never come for us, but that just isn't true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All will receive the just penalty for their sin, the just payment, the just wage. We will earn what we have deserved, and that is the eternal judgment of God against our sin. Listen to this description of the coming day of judgment from Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13. John says he saw in a vision, I saw the dead, the great and the small. Now who does that encompass? Everyone. The great, 
The powerful, the wealthy, the small, the weak, the unknown. All were gathered together, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. All of their wicked deeds, all of their life, all of their evil motives, all everything that fell short of the glory of God was written down carefully in the books of God. And the books were opened and the people were judged according to their deeds. Every human being has a date with the justice of God. at the divine bar of God's judgment. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Every one of them. No one escapes God's judgment that is to come. Although God's judgment may be delayed, don't Fool yourself into thinking that it will never happen. Yes, God is patient and long-suffering. And the fact that you're here this morning is proof of that. This is the day of mercy. This is the day of patience of our Lord. But the day of judgment is coming, rest assured. His mercy and patience and kindness is intended to lead you to repentance not to make you overconfident. It's to humble you in the face of His kindness. Romans 2, verses 4 and 6. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Again, Romans 2, 4 through 6. You're storing up wrath for yourself as long as you delay from turning from your sin and trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the day of mercy. This is the day of forgiveness. This is not the day of judgment, but the day of judgment is coming. The opportunity to turn from your sin and trust in Christ is waning. God's judgment is certain to come just as it has for others. Thirdly, third lesson, finally, God's judgment is certain to come despite our best efforts. Verses 14 through 19. Now verse 14 is a kind of warrior taunt. Yahweh, the divine warrior, is taunting his enemies. Did you know God did that? He does here. Nahum 3.14, draw for yourself water for the siege. Oh yeah, go ahead. See if that helps. How's that working out for you? Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. Yeah, build your walls, fill your tanks. Do everything you need to do. Do your best to prepare, but there is nothing you can do to avoid the certainty of the coming destruction that is ready to befall. So fill your cisterns, make bricks, man your defenses, but it's all going to come to nothing when God decides to bring His judgment upon you. 
Nahum 3.15, there, there in the brick pits, the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. And the futility of all their defensive preparations and the size of their armies and the experience of their leaders is made clear in verses 16 through 18. They are going to be attacked and overwhelmed. They're going to flee. They're going to be defeated and destroyed and all as a result of God's judgment for their sin and rebellion. The lesson to be learned here is that you can't outrun God's judgment. You can't dig your way out of God's whole of judgment. Through your own effort. You can't hide from God's coming judgment. God's judgment may delay, but it will come to each and every person outside of Christ. It reminds me of a song by Johnny Cash. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, Run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Friends, God's judgment is coming. It is certain to come. Despite our best efforts to defend against it, despite our best efforts to push it back and to pretend it won't happen, to whistle past the graveyard and hope against hope that you won't have to stand in front of your Creator and give an account for your life and your sin and your evil and your wickedness. You can do all of that, but it won't help. For God has fixed a day in which He will judge each and every person. Listen to this other picture of God's judgment in Romans, or Revelation 6, 15 through 17 says the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, everyone, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? And the answer is no one. No one is able to stand before the wrath of the Father and the wrath of the Lamb. No one will survive that judgment on their own. The reality is, judgment is coming. And there is only one way to escape that judgment. Amen? Come on. There's only one way to escape that judgment. Right? And it's through God's appointed means, His own Son, who God sent to this world out of love. Jesus came 
as the Son of God, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, always did what was pleasing to the Father, fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf and mine, so that God could say on two separate occasions, from a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Having lived a sinless life, Jesus could go to the cross and there on the cross bear the eternal weight of our sin and of God's just judgment against our sin. And on the cross, Jesus did that, just that. He became a curse for us. He took upon Himself every vile deed, every evil thought, every misplaced motive that our lives have produced. He bore it all. And he bore God's wrath in full and satisfied the righteous demands of God and of his law there on the cross. And he did it for you and he did it for me. Jesus Christ now offers forgiveness and eternal life and escape from the wrath that is to come through faith in him and him alone. Faith in the the fact that he satisfied God's just wrath and the demands of God's holiness fully on the cross for you and me when we trust in him. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. That you and I can escape the coming wrath of God, the coming judgment of God, because Jesus bore it fully in himself on the cross. In the film version of The Lord of the Rings, I know it's not in the books, but for all you nerds out there, that's not in the book. In the film version of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Aragorn, the leader of the armies of men, rallies his troops with a courage-stirring speech as they face overwhelming odds just outside the black gate of Mordor. Are you with me? He says this, My brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. My friends, this morning, I want to tell you that God's judgment is certainly coming. But it is not this day. Today can be a day of mercy, a day of grace, a day of forgiveness, a day of eternal life for you. Today can be a day of salvation and not of judgment. If you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone, be assured, judgment day is coming. But by God's grace and mercy, it is not this day. And therefore, it is not too late for you. Today is still a day of hope, a day of grace, a day to trust in Jesus. Don't wait any longer. Trust Him now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is good for us to consider the day of judgment that is coming. It is wise to prepare for it rightly. 
by turning from our sin and rebellion and trusting in you alone. I pray for any here who have not yet done that, that they would do so now, that they would flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to the cross of Jesus Christ and finding there a Savior who's borne all their sin and borne all the wrath that their sins deserved in his body on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, as we remember you. Be honored as we share in your table. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.